If you're uh, new with us, uh, we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, the chapter 9 of Luke is a very dense chapter, and it's really about Jesus uh, focusing on his disciples. Uh, Pastor Walter did a great job walking us through the previous passage, which Jesus was instructing his disciples to to trust in God's provision. And here Jesus uh, speaks about his identity, about the cost of following him, and, and why you should do so. Uh, so it's a really uh, foundational text. If you're not a Christian, this is a very important passage as Jesus lays out for us what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are Christians, uh, this is something that we all need to hear again and again and again, as Luke emphasizes here that we take up our cross daily, uh, right, in order to follow him. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we jump into this important text. Father, thank you for another Sunday where we can open up the scriptures, meet together, study the scriptures together, uh, have our, our minds recalibrated renewed as we think about the person and work of Jesus Christ, uh, who is our Savior, our, our King. And we pray today, Father, that your Holy Spirit would come and open, it up, open up our minds and impress upon our hearts uh, the things that we see in this text. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Everyone said, amen. I had this passage on my mind uh, a few weeks ago when I was uh, in Turkey uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, being in, in Turkey is a very conflicting experience. Uh, on the one hand, it's, it's a paradise for a Bible nerd, uh, because after the Gospels, uh, the majority of the New Testament takes place in Turkey. Uh, of course, most people in Turkey don't recognize that, as 99% of the country uh, are Muslim. Um, but you can go there today, and you find a, a ton of stuff. Uh, it's the most unexcavated, most unexplored uh, biblical land, really, that there is. And so, for, for example, I, I was drinking my coffee in the mornings before the conference sessions, and I was looking at the port in Atalia where Paul went back to Antioch. Uh, and most people don't recognize that over there, how significant that place was. My pastor friend who's there, Kadim, uh, grew up in Galatia, as we read in the Bible of the, of the book of Galatians, and yet he never heard of Galatia his entire childhood uh, because everything there has been renamed. And if you become a Christian in a place like Turkey, it requires great personal sacrifice. In fact, one of my friends there, who's also a pastor named David, told me this story. He said a guy walked into his church with his wife, and he said, Pastor, I'm from Europe. My family builds mosques, mosques in Europe. No one in my family knows I'm a Christian yet. My dad is a very wealthy and powerful man, and he would likely kill me. I've been hiding, he said, my Bible on my phone for months but I'm ready to go public with my faith. I'm probably a dead man, but I want people to know that I'm a Christian, and I want to encourage the next generation to follow Jesus. So challenged by a story like that, so encouraged by a story like that, and we know that those stories exist in various parts of the world, that if you're gonna follow Jesus, uh, it's no easy believism. It's gonna cost you something. And for most of us in the West, we we don't have to abandon family in order to follow Jesus, uh, fortunately, but we all must be willing to make sacrifices. Uh, and there are, in some cases, people who have to abandon family in order to follow Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you have made those sacrifices. You made some of them, right? You've sacrificed your time, your talent. Uh, and, and perhaps you've t- sacrificed money. Uh, you've renounced certain sins that you used to find pleasurable. You renounced certain practices that you once participated in. The call to follow Jesus requires sacrifice in many, many different ways. And it's not just a one-time sacrifice. As Luke here, as the gospel writer, puts it, that we take up our cross daily to follow Jesus. Following Jesus every day will cost us something, but he's worth it. He's worth it. Because he's worth it, because he's worthy of our devotion, we make these choices to follow him. 
sacrificially. And what Jesus reveals for us in this marvelous text is that following him is not only the right thing to do, it's the wise thing to do. It's the best thing to do. It's the most satisfying thing to do. It's the most uh, rewarding thing that you can do. And maybe you're not a Christian. You're just exploring the Christian faith. And you're, you know that you have to give up certain things in order to follow Jesus. And you're wondering whether or not it's worth it. You're wondering, should you give up certain things in order to follow Jesus? And Jesus tells you in this passage. And so I want us to look at four basic questions on following Jesus here. Number one, who is Jesus? Number two, what did Jesus come to do? Number three, what does Jesus call us to do? And number four, why should we do it? First, who is Jesus? We see here that Luke gives us the context that Jesus is praying alone and his disciples were with him. Matthew and Mark tell us the location that this has taken place in Caesarea Philippi. It's a beautiful mountainous region in northern Israel. Luke doesn't give us the location. What he gives us is Jesus' devotion. He mentions that Jesus was praying. And at various turning points in, throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see that in the life and ministry of Jesus, um, prayer takes place. So at his baptism, we read about Jesus in prayer. When he called the twelve, we read about Jesus in prayer. Here in this confession of Peter. Next week at the transfiguration, down in verse 28, goes up on the mountain to pray. At the, at the Mount of Olives, at, during his temptation, it's mentioned that he is in prayer, and he prays at the crucifixion. Jesus did not minister nor go to the cross prayerlessly. He went in communion with the Father. And if we think this call to follow Jesus uh, is a lot, well, it is, but the good news is we follow Jesus' pattern of prayer to the Father. This is where we get the strength to follow him, where we get the grace to follow him. And Jesus here is praying alone, and he poses a question for the disciples. Uh, what's the word on the street? Right? Uh, who do the crowds say that I am? And, and in many ways, the whole gospel has been building up to this question. We, we've heard a number of sermons already about who is this Jesus. That they're, they're marveling. But it, it, Jesus hasn't pressed his disciples yet for a decision. But now he does. But first he asks, you know, we might say, what's the culture's answer to this? And they say, well, some think you're John the Baptist. If you're not familiar with the Bible, John the Baptist was a, uh, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He announced to everyone that the Lamb of God was coming in Christ. He was a thunderous preacher of repentance. Or some say you're Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament figure, uh, an eschatological figure. There were a lot of ideas about Elijah uh, preceding the, the coming of Christ. He was a miracle worker. And there seemed to be a general understanding that was going on in this time period that Jesus was either the reappearance of John the Baptist or the reappearing of Elijah. And then there's some who just said, well, some think you're a prophet. Matthew tells us that some uh, said that Jesus was Jeremiah, perhaps. And what you notice in, in this, this culture's answer about who is Jesus, that these are positive views of Jesus, but they're inaccurate views of Jesus. They're incomplete pictures of Jesus. It was, it was a wonderful thing to kind of put Jesus along the illustrious history of Israel's leaders, but Jesus was more than a preacher of repentance. He was more than a, a, a miracle-working prophet. He was more than a weeping prophet like Jeremiah. They, they got some things right about Jesus in the sense of he was a holy man and that he did a lot of good things, but the picture was very incomplete. It's kind of like if you ask somebody, hey, who's Elon Musk? And they say, well, he's a guy that was born and raised in uh, Pretoria, South Africa. 
Well, you've got to say some more things than that, right? About to understand who this guy is. And since the Enlightenment, people have tried to make Jesus all sorts of things. People have tried to make Jesus a socialist, a feminist, uh, a nationalist, a moral example, an ethical teacher. And what often happens is they take a few isolated sayings or, or ministries of Jesus and blow them out of proportion and don't consider the whole story about Jesus, and you end up with a very incomplete, inaccurate picture of who Jesus is. So John Dominic Crossing says that Jesus was a wandering philosopher. Michael Borg says that Jesus was a charismatic faith healer. In the Jesus Seminar, Robert Funk and his funky bunch uh, said that Jesus was a subversive sage that was similar to Socrates or Buddha. Bart Ehrman says that Jesus was a first century apocalyptic prophet. In Islam, Jesus is a prophet inferior to Muhammad. Uh, Susan Haskins says that Jesus was a feminist. Gorbachev said Jesus was the first socialist. And uh, the one psychologist says that Christ is the therapist for all humanity. And in Scientology, Jesus is an implant forced upon a theton about a million years ago. <laughs> Whatever that means. Right? And then we have the Jesus of pop culture as Jesus appears on The Simpsons on South Park. Uh, he is in Talladega Nights as Ricky Bobby's praying to the baby Jesus. And in the movie Major League, they're praying to Jesus so that they can hit a curveball. And in all of these cases, you find that Jesus is somewhat pictured as a positive thing, but they're completely inaccurate, right, and completely whack in some cases. But most of these people think they're actually complimenting Jesus when they say these things. But Jesus is not honored by any of these views about him. Like, imagine saying this to your spouse, you know, well, I think she's a beautiful woman among many other beautiful women. Right? She follows in the long, a long line of beautiful women. Um, that's what it's like when you say that he's one of the prophets, that you just kind of lump him together with the rest of the prophets. But the issue is Jesus Christ is in a category by himself, and what honors him is exclusive praise. What honors him is to see him for who he is. And then, of course, there are some who go a step further and deny that Jesus even existed, and this is just bad history. It's the old liberal heresy that was drummed up by Albert Schweitzer and others in a thing called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. In his book, he writes, The Jesus of Nazareth, who came forward publicly as the Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth, and died to give his work its final consecration, never had any existence. Now, even a guy like Bart Ehrman, who is, doesn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, doesn't believe in the resurrection and so on, still says, you're whack if you don't believe Jesus existed in history. It's a thing called mythicism. Ehrman writes in uh, Did Jesus Exist Historically, the following, there is no scholar in any college or university in the Western world who teaches classics, ancient history, New Testament, early Christianity, any related field who doubts that Jesus existed. The reason for thinking Jesus existed is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. He goes on, so I'm sorry, I respect your disbelief, but if you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism, because frankly, it makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. Who is Jesus Christ? He existed in history. Some are saying he's Elijah. Some saying he was John the Baptist. Others lumping him in with a variety of prophets. That's kind of like today's modern world. Positive but inaccurate views of Jesus 
What is the correct answer? Verse 20, we find the correct answer in a surprising place, in the mouth of Simon Peter, don't we? When he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And the emphasis here is on you. Not what everybody else has been saying. Not what your, your mom says. Not what your friend says, what your neighbor says. Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks first. I think angels held their breath as, as Peter took his foot out of his mouth and spoke. And he says, you are the Christ of God. I'm glad some guys like Peter get it right every now and then. <laughs> this is a good day. for Now, we know in the other account, he had to get rebuked right after this. But, um, but let's give him props. Uh, at least here, he, he's getting uh, the category right that Jesus is the Christ. That is not Jesus' last name. This is Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ of God. He is the one that was promised in the Old Testament that he would come and deliver Israel. He would come and be the Savior of the nations. And up to this point, we're not seeing people get the answer right to who is Jesus. The Father declared it at Jesus' baptism. Demons declared it at various points in the story. But finally now, midway through the gospel, a human gets it right. Peter says, you are the Christ. And ever since this confession, we've been saying this as well. People say, who is Jesus? We say, he is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited deliverer. He is the king of Psalm 110. David's son and David's Lord. He is the king to end all kings. All other kings pointed to him. He is the king of kings. And all of our hope rests in him. Now Matthew tells us that this wasn't just because Peter was, was having a good day, but that the Holy Spirit showed this to Peter. And that's what we pray today for our unbelieving friends, that the Lord would open up their minds and hearts to remove the veil that's over their eyes to see the Jesus of the Bible and come to follow him, just as he's opened up our eyes. Otherwise, we would be in the same tragic position. And we need to keep the, 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 keep the main thing the main thing when we witness to our unbelievers, right? Unbelieving friends, like, you'll get carried away in all sorts of discussions uh, sometimes. Well, what about dinosaurs? Are they in the Bible? Uh, did Adam have a belly button? Um, what about the problem of evil or something like that? I remember counseling a guy one time, a very nice guy, and uh, he said, I believe certain things about the Christian faith, but I don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and I don't believe he rose from the dead. And he, he asked me this question, why do I have to believe in Jesus to be a Christian? I was like, well, I don't want to state the obvious, but like, it's called Christianity. It's like named after him. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, th this is central. This is the main thing. Uh, and this, if you're not a Christian, this is what we call you to. You know, a lot of people think when they hear preachers or when they hear about Christianity that we're, we're calling them to be more religious or to become more moral or be nicer. In fact, sometimes people say, I don't need religion, I have a conscience. And what they're assuming is that the purpose of the faith is to modify their behavior or make them more moral. And they're like, I already have a conscience. I don't need religion to do that. But that's not what we're calling people to. We're not calling people to become more moral or to change their behavior, though coming to Christ does change your behavior. But what we're saying is, who is Jesus Christ? And then it's about living our lives in alignment with who he is every single day. That's the first question. I'll go quicker on the second. 
What did Jesus come to do? It's right there in verse 21. Before we see the answer to that, we see a very, another surprising twist in this narrative. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Don't tell anybody about this. Now, we live on this side of the resurrection. We are to tell everybody about this. But in this context, I think Jesus was trying to avoid widespread misunderstanding because the, the term Messiah was so charged with misunderstanding and improper expectation. If the word got out to everybody, it could have incited a political movement filled with unregenerate people. It wasn't time yet to reveal his identity to the world, but he would in due time. So what did he come to do? Well, you notice there in the text, Jesus predicts his crucifixion and his resurrection. This is the Messiah we believe in. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. This was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It was a title that became increasingly associated with humiliation and rejection. And that's precisely what he says is going to happen to him, right? Notice the four things he says. The Son of Man will suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised on the third day. And we've got the wrong Jesus if we don't understand this as being central to his identity as Messiah. Jesus didn't just come to give us some nice ethical tips, to give us a bit of philosophy. He came to be crucified in the place of ruined sinners. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And praise God he did it. Praise God that Jesus fulfilled this prediction. He wasn't the Messiah that people expected or wanted, but he was the Messiah that everyone needs. He came to do something that would be far greater than overthrow Rome. He would come to deal with our sin. He would come to destroy death through his death and resurrection. Now, we get that because we know the whole story. Up to this point, though, it hasn't happened. And these disciples look like knuckleheads trying to figure all of this out. Right? You can imagine when Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, that they're thinking, great, we're going to sit on thrones. We're going to conquer Rome. We, we, we today, we can't even really imagine Jesus apart from the cross. Even if you're not a Christian, like you just associate those two things, don't you? I don't know if you've ever played like the word association game when you're bored or something on the road. And you, you say the first thing that pops in your head. And so someone may say George Washington. And you say uh, first United States president or Revolutionary War. MLK Jr., Civil Rights, I Have a Dream, Michelangelo, Sistine Chapel, Ninja Turtle, <laughs> depending on... Depending on your background, I guess. Michael Jordan, you think goat, greatest of all time, or, yeah, that, amen, thank you. Uh, or maybe a bad crying meme uh, that comes to your mind. And if you just, you just look at a guy on the, uh, in the crowd, and you're just, hey man, let's play this game, and you throw out Jesus. One of the first things they have to say is a cross. But at this point, that cross hadn't happened yet. And so for them, Messiah, Jesus as Messiah meant we're going to dominate. We're going to conquer. When LeBron James went to the heat, he was the Messiah. And they had that big press conference called The Decision. And he says, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. And that implied we're going to win some championships. LeBron didn't show up and say, we're going to lose every game. Right? Messiahs win. And that's why a crucified Messiah, they struggled to understand it. And yet this is what had to happen. Notice this must in the text. He must do these things. Theologians sometimes call this a divine must. 
He, it was ordained by God that he do this. That Jesus' death was planned. He, he, he had to do this. His suffering and exaltation would not be the result of anything else but the, the foreordained plan of God. Even though violent men would put him to death, he had to do this. And they ultimately didn't take his life, he laid it down of his own authority. And the hope of our salvation rests on Jesus completing this task. Either he suffers for our sins or we suffer eternally. That's what our sin required, an atonement. And through Christ we have it. And notice what else Jesus predicts. He predicts a resurrection. Now it's one thing to predict your death. You might get lucky and do that. But Jesus here predicts a resurrection. Yeah, come and get some of that. And, And not only does he predict a resurrection he tells us what day it's going to be on on the third day i'm going to rise again it was just as certain to him as the crucifixion you got to be really confident to proclaim uh, predict a, a resurrection don't you in other words the crucifixion would not be the last word there was good friday but praise god there was resurrection sunday Jesus would step out into the sunlight on the third day as the vindicated and victorious Son of God. That's what Jesus came to do. Thirdly, what does Jesus call us to do? That's in one verse here. If anyone would come after me, this is an invitation to the whole world. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. How's that sound? (laughs) We may struggle with this calling, huh? Especially in today's culture when everything is about the self. Love yourself. Think about yourself. Make yourself happy. Paul told Timothy that in the last days people will become lovers of self. And what discipleship is about is a turning away from yourself and turning toward Jesus Christ. And there's nothing as glorious as that. Right? Becoming a follower of Jesus takes you away from being a self-exalter and makes you a Christ exalter. You say, in effect, this world has nothing for me, and Christ is everything to me. Deny ourselves. McShane put it well many years ago, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. Just keep gazing. Take up your cross and follow me. Now today, when we think about crosses, we think about symbols, we think about stuff on a, a, a chain perhaps, Sometimes we use this phrase as a figure of speech, take up your cross. You're like, well, I got a really bad mother-in-law, but everybody's got their cross to bear, right? That's not my story, by the way. I've got a wonderful mother-in-law, and I hope she's watching. Um, But, you know, when Jesus makes this statement, he's got in mind torture, cruelty, shame, terror. That's what the Romans used the crosses for. They They would terrorize people with these things. And there are no known survivors of a Roman crucifixion. If you were being crucified, it was over. And it's like Jesus is thinking, what can I say that would convey a total claim on your whole life? How about take up a cross? He wants all of us. All of us. And Luke says, he says daily. So this is not limited just to martyrdom like if you were to die for the faith, but it's used as a way to convey daily self-sacrifice, daily taking up a cross. What this means is practically, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you may face shame, embarrassment, rejection, 
You will have to put to death sin, selfishness. You may be called to do hard things for the sake of the gospel. Why would you want to do that? We'll get there in a minute. But notice who's saying it. It's our king. And we don't negotiate with the king. And he's not just any king. He's the king who went to the cross for us. He's the king who loves us more than we could ever dream. So why should we do it further? Verses 24 to 7. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, man, this sounds terrible. Deny myself, take up a cross, follow me. Well, he's given us reason already, but there's more reason here. And you notice it in these three uh, verses that begin with the word for. Three reasons why it is wise for you to follow Jesus. And to help us remember it, I'll put it in three Ps. There's a paradox, there's profit, and there is the parousia. Okay, here we go. A paradox. What is that? Well, it's like this statement. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Why should you want to follow Jesus? So you can truly live. So you can truly live. And the only way to have real life is by losing it for Christ's sake. Right? There are only two options. You are either, right now, losing your life or saving it. And it just depends on what you're doing with Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have said yes to Jesus Christ, we find great pleasure in this little phrase when he says, for my sake. Why should you want to deny self, take up a cross, and follow Jesus? For his sake. Because we have found in Jesus one who was like no other. Paul says in Philippians 3, for his sake I count all things as rubbish, as dung, as scubala in Greek. It's all garbage next to the glory he says of knowing jesus christ in other words we look to jesus not as one who's just useful not as one who's just useful to get us out of hell we look to jesus as one who's beautiful he's more than this is not utilitarianism this is worship we follow jesus for his sake because we have decided this world has nothing for us and jesus christ is everything to us and then there's profit when he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit himself or lose himself? Or as other writers put it, to lose your soul. There are things that are more important than riches. Proverbs says that a good name is to be chosen above riches. Here, Jesus is saying that eternal life is better than riches. So do you value your soul? Do you value eternal life more than stuff in this world? In other words, Jesus is saying to you, you have nothing really to lose. You have everything to gain. Right? Sometimes we talk about this as the cost of discipleship, what you have to give up to follow Jesus. But when you consider what you gain, you're not giving up anything. You're gaining everything. What we should be talking about more, I think, is the cost of non-discipleship. What you're losing when you don't follow Jesus Christ. Jesus says you lose your soul if you don't follow him. So, say, say goodbye to the world and say yes to Jesus Christ. The only thing more costly than following Jesus is not following him. And you don't want to be that person. And you get to hear this message so you can make your own decision. So you can be wise and follow him. And then Jesus speaks of, as we say in theology, the parousia, or his second coming, when Jesus wraps it all up. And he says this in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
Jesus takes our minds to the future. Your present decision should be based upon what's coming in the future. Something is happening in the future. Think about this. The same Jesus who predicted his crucifixion and resurrection is also now predicting this to come. And just as the crucifixion and resurrection happen, so we have every reason to believe that this next event is going to happen. Why should we follow Jesus? Because we will stand before him. Because glory is coming to us. Right? Someone posted this week, the chances of a kid becoming a pro athlete is 0.02%. But the chances of standing before a holy God is 100%. We should prioritize accordingly. (laughs) We should prepare accordingly. Those who look forward to the coming of Jesus, we look forward to it with, with great anticipation. But for those who are not in Christ, we look upon that day with dread. And Jesus says, some are just ashamed of me. How could we be ashamed of Jesus Christ? Look what he has done for us. How could we be ashamed of his words? Don't you love how Jesus puts these two together? Don't be ashamed of him nor his words. Because this will be a temptation, right? To say, I follow Jesus, but there, there's part of the Bible that I don't like or I don't believe. But that just doesn't work, does it? We don't have Jesus without his words. Just like you really can't have anybody without their words. Imagine looking to someone later today and say, I like you, but I don't want you to speak. I just don't, I don't want to listen to this thing you've got to say. Well, then we're not really, we don't like that person because that person is revealed through their words. And we follow Jesus by following his word. And so we don't want to be ashamed of Jesus when, when things are out of step with modern culture or when people think we're archaic or whatever. That's all right. They, 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 they can mock, but we're not going to shame Jesus, the one who died for us, who's coming again for us. And then verse 27, finally, I'll say this and then I'm done because I'm getting hot with this jacket on. But I tell you truly, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. If I was in the old school church, I'd just throw his jacket off and somebody play on the keys right quick and uh, we'd have some church up in here. But uh, we're a Mago Day, a little bit more or whatever. Uh, <laughs> fill in the blank. Um, this is a very uh, uh, interesting uh, verse and I, I don't know, I don't think we can be dogmatic on exactly what Jesus is talking about. There are many options here. He's not speaking of the second coming, it would seem, because some, uh, they died before the second coming. What does it mean, I guess, the, the issue is to see the kingdom of God? And that this could refer to the resurrection. It could refer to the ascension. Um, it could refer to just basic kingdom activity, like, like God's power in ministry to see the kingdom of God. I, I think it's best to, to see it connected to what comes next, which is the transfiguration that the disciples are going to see something. They're going to see something very significant. And as Peter says in his, his epistle, the transfiguration, which we'll look at next week, was a preview of the second coming. That you guys are going to see something that's going to have an indelible effect upon your life. And it's going to be a preview of the glory that is to come. And that little preview of the glory that is to come is going to give you motivation when times get hard. When you think about the glory that is to come for us as Christians, we realize that suffering will not go on forever. One day we will be delivered from this body of death. 
One day we will see the king with our eyes. We were not on that holy mountain when he was transfigured before these disciples, but we will see Jesus coming again in glory. And so once again, my friend, not only should you follow Jesus because it's the right thing to do, but it's the wise thing to do. Following Jesus is the path to real life. Following Jesus is the path to real gain. And following Jesus is the path to real glory. And church, our crucified Messiah is reigning and he will come again for us. It is my great pleasure every week I get to preach to tell you again that Jesus Christ is coming again. Right? And whatever stuff, scubala, we endure in this life, we know that Jesus is coming again to take us to be with himself. And we're going to be with him forever. And then we will see that every sacrifice we ever made for Jesus Christ was really nothing in comparison to all that is coming to us. And these are the kinds of people that Jesus uses. Not based upon intellect or gift or background. It's people who simply say in their hearts, the world has nothing for me and Jesus is everything to me. Those whose lives have been consumed with the glory of Jesus Christ and they live out of the overflow of a heart of adoration in service and in witness. And so church, let's see him for who he is. Let's follow him by faith until our faith ends in sight and we see the glory of God in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, this is who we call you to. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. He will have you. If he's had us, he'll have you by his grace. Father, we thank you for your word today. Even now, as we anticipate taking the Lord's Supper, we recognize just what great truth and what great grace we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we worship you today. We adore you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope we have in you. We thank you that because of what you have done for us, this life is not all there is that the best is yet to come for us. And so I pray you would help us daily to count all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing you. And we pray this in your great name. Amen.